You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, April 29, 2021. I'm Haley Zhao. And I'm Megan Zarez. Some New York City roads were closed to traffic to create more outdoor space during the pandemic. But now, as the city reopens, some residents want to keep their open streets. Sometimes you have a terrible crisis, but something really important comes out of it, something that maybe no one would have considered doing. New York is offering more tuition money to college students in the state, but not to students who are incarcerated. How do we offer people inside the privilege of education? That's the wrong question. It's how do you justify their exclusion from education? What virtual reality really means for the future of the internet. A nuclear fusion could one day be a clean energy source for New York. The regulations, science, and politics standing in its way. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Nicole McNulty. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio is aiming to fully reopen the city by July 1st. Even though a reopening day is set, he didn't lay out specific steps or details on COVID-19 precautions. Bars will soon be able to offer alcohol with no food, but no date has been proposed to bring back 24-hour subway service, critical for many in the city. The need to reopen the city was underlined by a report on tourist spending during the pandemic released by the city comptroller yesterday. Spending by tourists dropped 73%. The report also notes a $1.2 billion decline in tax revenue over the last year. The FBI raided Rudy Giuliani's Upper East Side apartment yesterday morning. The raid was part of an investigation into whether or not he broke lobbying laws during his time as former President Trump's personal lawyer. This morning, during an interview on Fox Business, Trump called Giuliani a, quote, great patriot and said the raid was, quote, very unfair. Thousands of parents and students are calling for the introduction of an Asian American studies program at New York City public schools. An open letter urged the mayor and chancellor, Misha Porter, to hold yearly activities to celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage and to teach students to stand up against anti-Asian racism. Britney Spears will speak at a Los Angeles court hearing in June about her conservatorship. It will be the first time the court will hear directly from Spears in two years. Weather-wise, watch out for thunderstorms and high winds this evening. But tomorrow, skies will clear, with temperatures in the 60s and 70s this weekend. Good news for spring makers who will be at a pop-up market at City Point in Brooklyn on Saturday and Sunday. You'll find plenty of options for that Mother's Day gift you've been meaning to pick up. Nicole McNulty, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Megan Zarez. And I'm Haley Zhao. Mayor de Blasio announced this morning that New York City will fully reopen on July the 1st. Restaurants, shops, gyms, and more will begin to operate at full capacity. The city's infection rate is falling. More than half of New Yorkers have received one vaccine dose, and more than a third have been fully vaccinated. But will it be completely safe to reopen this summer? Luisa Borrell is a professor of epidemiology at CUNY. She says unequal distribution of vaccine is a major concern. So, for example, the Bronx that have been the boroughs heated the hardest, it has only 33% of people with at least one dose. So if we don't reach certain level for July 1st, 
for example, 75%, we may not be ready to open. If we continue with the current rate of vaccination and we reach out to everyone, especially in the boroughs with the highest um, proportion of positivity, we may be ready. In some communities, they are less likely to get vaccinated, whether it's due to vaccine hesitancy or a lack of access to vaccine sites. So how would this reopening directly affect them? And what could we do to alleviate that? We are working in the hesitancy issues, especially with the um, minority community, African-American and Latinos. The issue is right now accessibility. In some cases, people have to call in the middle of the night to get an appointment. So at some point, it will be good if we either implement a door-to-door approach or bring the vaccine to the community, to the local churches, the local um, organization in which people feel comfortable. What would be the most significant difference between a fully reopened city and the current stage we are in now. The amount of people in the restaurant and in closed place, that's going to be the big difference. Right now, we have 25% capacity. So you get a lot of space between the tables and, and people are, for the most part, keeping up with the guidelines. If we go fully open, that may not happen. Even though a lot of people are getting vaccinated, there are still concerns about new variants. What kind of effect do you think the new variant would have on the city's reopening plan? We know that the vaccine were developed when we had only a single variant. Even in New York City, we have identified other other variants that the vaccine may not be 100% effective against. So that's something to consider as we reopen. The city's plan is to reopen on July the 1st, and the 4th of July is just three days away from that. And that's usually a time for big gatherings and celebrations. How can people enjoy this holiday safely? The city is keeping track every week about the rate of positivity, and they have a milestone. So they have to make sure that they are meeting those milestones at least for the, the three or four weeks before July 1st, and also tell people to keep this social distancing as unmask when they are in, in public or in crowd gathering. Luisa Burrell, Professor of Epidemiology at CUNY Grad School of Public Health. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. New guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control say that if you're fully vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask outdoors. Unless you're in a crowd, that is, like at a Yankees game or at a concert. But after 13 months of the pandemic and reports of variants circulating around the U.S., are New Yorkers really ready to go maskless? Arcelia Martin went to Morningside Park to find out. I'm at the north end of Morningside Park. Raindrops slide off tulip leaves. People are beginning to move around. Runners, dog walkers, kids on their way to school in multicolored rain boots. Regardless of who they are or where they're headed, most are wearing a mask. Like Jonathan Lim, he's sporting a bright blue one. He's not so sure about ditching it just yet. Yeah, I still haven't made a decision on it, on whether or not I will continue to wear a mask outside, but 
for now, I'm going to keep doing it just because it's a habit. It feels good. Um, and I'm vaccinated, but I'm not, you know, still 100% feeling safe about everything. In the middle of the park, I met Rajesh Jaraman. He's walking alone and not wearing a mask until I approach him. When it comes to the new guidelines, he said he's all for it. I like it. I'm vaccinated and I'm cautiously getting out, seeing, you know, when nobody's around, I take the mask off and uh, you you figure out what the risk is and, and, and slowly loosen up. I, I, think it, I think it's a good idea. But for some, the new guidelines don't answer all the questions people have about risk, especially when it comes to navigating a big city. Well, I think it's great. It's a little challenging to figure out how to apply that in New York City when you're still running into people, meeting people. Joyce Griggs is a top administrator at the Manhattan School of Music. Part of her daily work is determining what's safest for the college's faculty, staff, and students. It's something that we discuss all of the time and try to provide clear messaging. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a lot that's open to interpretation. If I'm in around, like I always carry it around me, like put it around my chin, just in case there's like a large group of people, um, just for their safety and my safety as well. Robert Ravenscraft likes to work out and doesn't love wearing a mask while doing it. So he's excited about the new guidelines and is fully vaccinated. But for now, he's still going to keep a mask on him when he goes for a run. Emmanuel DeSantis is standing in front of the pond on the south end of the park. DeSantis has a full palm of breadcrumbs. We were feeding the ducks and we are bringing my little son to school. He goes to school right here. Hi, good morning. Hello. My name is Mattia. Mattia? Hi, Mattia. Hi. DeSantis told me he's vaccinated. He said it's why he's not wearing a mask. As a New Yorker, like, do you feel safe now that you're vaccinated? Yes, I do. I feel very safe. As of this morning, more than a third of New Yorkers are fully vaccinated. Arcelia Martin, Columbia Radio News. When the New York state budget passed this month, some education advocates celebrated. The budget increased funding for CUNY and SUNY, as well as financial support for students through the Tuition Assistance Program, also known as TAP. But as Karen Maniwaraho reports, one group of prospective students is specifically excluded from this support, prison inmates. Darnell Epps is talking on Zoom from his apartment in Ithaca. At 41, he'll be moving his family to New Haven and starting Yale Law School. So I'm looking to move to Connecticut and then uh, jump into the 1L year with all the students over there, which is going to be intense. So I'm gearing up for that. But uh, hold on one second. <laughs> uh, kids in the background, just being kids like I was. <laughs> it's been a long road to Yale. When Darnell was 20 years old, he and his brother were involved in a fight in which one person lost their life. Darnell was sent to Five Points Correctional Facility. It was my first uh, felony conviction, first time going to state prison. Um, and, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. His first year in prison, Darnell completed his GED. Then, with the help of a private grant, he began taking college classes. Relying on limited funding, it took him eight years to complete his associate's degree, just before he was released from prison in 2020. Then, he applied to Yale. Research shows that correctional education can improve the chances that people like Darnell will not return to prison. A study by the RAND Corporation says recidivism is reduced by more than 40 percent compared to inmates not enrolled in educational programs. This is Max Kenner of the Bard Prison Initiative speaking in a policy briefing to restore state funding for people in prison. 
college and prison is not exclusively some kind of radical intervention. It says the prisons are here, but we acknowledge that people within them, like ourselves, have a future that we are going to share. The year Darnell finished his degree, there were about 45,000 inmates in New York State prisons. Only about 1,600 of them were enrolled in college programs, largely due to a lack of state funding. In fact, inmates were specifically prohibited from applying for financial aid programs, TAP on the state level, and federal Pell Grants. Those limits on support for prison education date back to the so-called tough-on-crime policies of the 1990. Here's Max Kenner. Because it didn't just say, it didn't just say, we believe in prison. It said to people in prison, we believe in the prison. We believe in your conviction, your crime, your punishment, but we have no interest in your future. In the past decade, there have been a number of attempts to return funding for education in prisons. None were successful. In 2014, Governor Cuomo tried to expand funding for prison education. Some Republican lawmakers responded by saying it was a misallocation of education resources. They launched a campaign called Kids Before Cons. But this year may be different. In 2020, the Trump administration restored federal Pell Grants for incarcerated students. The Democratic supermajority in the state Senate is considering lifting the ban on state education funding to inmates. Stephanie Bazell is the Director of Policy and Advocacy at the College for Community Fellowship, a New York-based advocacy group. For Bazell, increased funding to programs like CUNY and SUNY is important, but she says our conversations around educational access still exclude people in prisons and jails and should focus on equity. How do we offer people inside the privilege of education? And that's the wrong question. It's how do you justify their exclusion from education? Because education is a right. For advocates of college and prison programs, the goal of restoring TAP eligibility for incarcerated students is still within reach. The bill on the New York Senate floor to repeal the ban on incarcerated students receiving financial assistance is now in committee. Karen Manirajo, Columbia Radio News. Tomorrow, Indian Point, the nuclear power plant just north of New York City, will shut down its last reactor. The plant has generated enough energy to power up one million homes. Indian Point's fission energy may one day be replaced by fusion in New York's pursuit of carbon-free power. Kate Stockroom explains the scientific, regulatory, and political hurdles nuclear fusion faces. When it comes to clean energy, nuclear fusion is legendary. Fusion is kind of the holy grail of energy sources. Charles Neumeyer was with Princeton Plasma Physics Lab for over 20 years. One engineer told me anyone who's in fusion knows about Charlie, which makes sense. His resume reads like a timeline for fusion's development. It's it's a wonderful thing. It's like a gift from God. It uh, doesn't have much of anything that's bad about it, except that it's really hard to get it working. <laughs> Neumeyer explains New York's first hurdle to fusion. It's just difficult. Fusion creates energy by forcing atoms together. It's the same reaction that fuels the sun and stars. But turning that energy into a usable power source here on Earth would take enormous magnets and temperatures around 150 million degrees Celsius. 
Neumeyer says that's much harder to do than, say, burn coal. You dig coal out of the ground, you light it on fire. Or gas, or oil. It's the same kind of thing, it comes spewing out of the ground. Or even run a nuclear fission plant. You, you mine uranium and then you separate the, this stuff from that stuff and you make a big pile and it gets hot. But New York is closing one of its four fission plants and instead investing $2.5 billion in renewables like wind and solar. Though renewable sources provide carbon-free power, fusion would be the more efficient, reliable source of clean energy when it becomes possible. But then there's regulation. The biggest difficulty really is that regulators are used to fission. Laban Koblenz is with ITER, an experimental fusion reactor being built in France. ITER is a research facility, so regulations there are set to provide a template for fusion regulations all over the world, including New York. But the only regulations we've had to create before are based on the old fission standards. And fission has a, I mean, safety, the regulation of safety as seen even before Three Mile Island in Chernobyl and Fukushima is an extremely complex thing that's based on risk, it's based on emergency systems, backups. However, unlike fission, fusion reactions stop if conditions aren't met. So there is no potential for such meltdowns. Because it's safer, Koblenz expects future fusion plants will have requirements typical for any regulated industrial facility, like a car manufacturer, plus radiation safety directives. The regulation associated with fusion should be a minuscule fraction of that associated with, with what we have all come to think of as nuclear fission. Dave Wilburn is a leading American power generation consultant. He says that same distinction between fission and fusion will also need to be made clear for New York's politicians and public who pushed to close Indian Point for years. My concern is fusion will be reported as fusion nuclear power and it gets all the the baggage associated with fission power of the past. You're familiar with the term NIMBY? NIMBY is an old term uh, in the power generation industry. It means not in my backyard. Across the ocean from New Yorkers' backyards, ITER, the experimental fusion reactor, is on track for its first test in 2025. It's a promising start, but experts say the technology to harness fusion energy in the States is likely still two decades away. Kate Stockram, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Megan Zares. And I'm Haley Zhao. President Biden wants community college to be free for two years. What would this mean for New York state schools? Banning traffic from some city blocks has been popular during the pandemic. But can residents keep it going? And New York City is opening its very first soccer stadium. These stories and more coming up. Last night in his joint address to Congress, President Biden announced his plan to make community college tuition free. But even without the cost of tuition, a degree may still be out of reach for many low-income New Yorkers. Eli Dvorkin is the editorial and policy director at the Center for an Urban Future. He says there's a lot at stake for the thousands of New Yorkers without a college degree. Community college is the doorway into higher education for so many New Yorkers from lower-income backgrounds. And, uh, you know, the evidence has shown 
consistently that a CUNY credential can lead to uh, enormous gains in economic mobility. Free tuition, it's not a new thing for New York. Up until 1976, you could attend any one of the two or four year colleges in the CUNY system without paying tuition. Today, that's not that's not really the case. What's changed since then? Well, that's right. I mean, uh, the the city still has open enrollment for its community colleges, but the tuition bill is pretty high. It's actually one of the higher uh, tuition uh, rates in the nation for a community college. Um, a student is paying on average about $5,200 a year. The challenge there is not, though, just that tuition is expensive, but really that the cost of attending college, the true cost of attending college, includes so much more than tuition from MetroCard or books or technology to just some of the basic living expenses, um, kept helping to, you know, students keep a roof over their ha- heads and um, have enough food so that they're attending class without being there on an empty stomach. You know, the reality in New York City is actually that the majority of community college students already attend uh, CUNY tuition free. The challenge there is that we still have alarmingly low graduation rates in our community colleges. Um, you know, these days uh, for students in two-year programs, Within three years, only about 23 or 24 percent of students are actually going to earn that credential. That level is just too low. So while free tuition would help, um, it really won't get at the root of that problem, which is support for all of those non-tuition costs. Right. I mean, one of the programs that I think addresses some of those concerns, and I know that you've written about it, um, is the CUNY um, ASAP program, which is a program that provides support for some of those non-tuition costs of attending college. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that's the key takeaway of ASAP. Um, It's been proven to more than double graduation rates at CUNY's community colleges. But the key to that success is that ASAP provides more than just support for uh, tuition. ASAP is really a wraparound set of supports that are directly targeted at college success. Um, so ASAP includes, in addition to, uh, to the kind of handholding that can be so helpful from academic advisors, uh, it also includes a free metro card. It includes free textbooks. Um, so it addresses some of those uh, non-tuition costs. All of that together leads to dramatic results. If you were managing, you know, this new influx of money, how would you advise lawmakers to direct it? For this investment to really move the needle on college success, to actually help a lot more students earn a credential, uh, it could look a lot like ASAP. In fact, you know, if it was possible to use some of this money to make ASAP a universal program, it would have a transformative impact on CUNY's community colleges. And we estimate that uh, making ASAP universal could lead to more than 16,000 additional students graduating every year. Um, but it's a little bit expensive. ASAP is not, an, not a cheap program to implement, given the combination of supports um, that it requires. But um, the results really bear out the necessity of that investment because it has had such a demonstrated and, and proven impact on uh, increasing graduation rates, even for the students with the greatest barriers to, um, to college success. Eli Dvorkin is the editorial and policy director at the Center for an Urban Future. Eli, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. When the pandemic hit last year, crowded sidewalks and other public spaces suddenly felt dangerous. So the city launched the Open Streets program, banning traffic from certain blocks to give people more room to move and to hang out. But as Cass Smith report, as the city reopens, it's unclear how the program will continue and who will do the work to make it happen. 34th Avenue in Jackson Heights, Queens, is lined by tall, leafy trees. 
Underneath the canopy on a recent afternoon, Oscar Escobar leads a group of salsa dancers. I love the open street because it's just amazing. Each morning at 8 a.m., over a mile of this avenue is transformed into a no-car zone. Barricades block the intersections until 8 p.m. Nearby, 53-year-old Darlene Canino is standing in her driveway, watching pedestrians and smoking a cigar. You know, everybody comes out, uh, you get to know a lot of people, people that I never knew that live so close by, you know, so I enjoy it. Leah Diaz is learning how to roller skate. She's seven years old and covered, head to toe, in protective gear. You know, if I keep falling, uh, it's really going bad, but I think it's going good. <laughs> Jesse Willman watches his kids bounce a basketball nearby. He says now they can run straight out their front door and play in the open street. There's always been a lag of park in the neighborhood, and so now it's like all of a sudden we got a brand new park. You can find open streets like this one in Jackson Heights scattered all across the five boroughs, over 60 miles of road in total. Residents I spoke with also believe open streets make biking and walking safer and reduce air pollution in their neighborhood. Gib Vaconi works with a community group that runs two open streets in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. Dozens of these groups exist throughout the city and run the streets. Vaconi says he's amazed by the level of community support. Sometimes you have a terrible crisis, but something really important comes out of it, something that maybe no one would have considered doing before the crisis, and Open Streets is like that. Owen Goodfriend is a professor of urban planning at Hunter College. He says car-free streets aren't revolutionary. In fact, he says, streets have been around a lot longer than cars. And streets have been used as marketplaces, as play spaces and meeting spaces for hundreds of years. And it's only in the last hundred years that they've been primarily devoted to cars. The city began open streets as a short-term, temporary solution in the pandemic. But residents liked them so much they lobbied the city to make them permanent. So far, Mayor de Blasio agrees. Last month at a press conference, he said the program was a surprising success. We made the decision after the experience in 2020 to make open streets permanent. But it's unclear how that will work. On Monday, the mayor proposed $4 million for the program for the next fiscal year. The funding would provide staffing help for cleanup and barricade maintenance. The city council is expected to vote on a bill today that would require the Department of Transportation to continue the program and provide resources as available. Kyle Gorman is a manager at the Department of Transportation who oversees the open streets. He says the city knows that the program needs more money and manpower to continue. We are committed to the long-term sustainability, viability, and success of this program. Meanwhile, most open streets are still staffed by neighborhood volunteers. They set up barricades that block cars every morning and take them down at night. They also pay out of pocket for programs like yoga classes or block parties. And some residents say it's a burden to continue providing those resources. Jim Burke co-founded the volunteer group of about 40 people that run the open street on 34th Ave in Jackson Heights. He says he was out there every morning helping move the barricades until one day last October. I was like sipping my coffee. I just finished the barricade and boom. He had a massive heart attack.
And luckily, there were two volunteers that were also coming from different directions, closing the streets, and uh, they helped. Uh, and then someone uh, called their son and, and got their son to come pick me up and bring me close by to Elmhurst Hospital. And that saved my life. I think it's been extremely challenging given the time requirement, the physical labor requirement. Mike Leiden is an urban planner at the Brooklyn-based firm Street Plans. He consults for two community groups that run open streets, one in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, and one on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He says the city's hands-off approach thus far has put poor groups at a disadvantage. If you are in a wealthier neighborhood where you have a larger number of people working from home, who are able to walk outside, put a barricade back in place, who are able to observe the street, who have resources and friends with the resources to help raise funds to you know, make sure these streets are a success and add programming. And the high burden is not shared equitably. Goodfriend, the college professor, also worries about the city's hands-off approach to open streets. He says during the fiscal crisis of the 1970s, the city similarly backed away from managing its parks. And a lot of the city's parks are now run by private nonprofits that are dependent on voluntary participation philanthropically from the public. And I worry that leaving the open streets management, if the city continues to abdicate, it's just going to become little fiefdoms. Back on 34th Avenue, Burke says that even though he doesn't do the barricades anymore, he's still hosting group activities, like bike rides. Uh, I've done every single bike ride except the, except the very first one right after my heart attack. Not bad, right? Meanwhile, the city is encouraging neighborhood groups to continue working on their own and also to apply for new streets to add to the program. Kat Smith, Columbia Radio News. And now, the next installment in our series, New York Moments. We are going to march. We are going to take it to the streets. And I want y'all to keep this energy. I want y'all to be loud. I don't want to hear no fun. Well, we were actually just having dinner. We just found this peaceful protest, and we just really wanted to be a part of it. We live down the street, and that's one of the best ways to walk home. Meredith Wilford is here at a Black Lives Matter rally in Hell's Kitchen with her seven-year-old daughter. And, you know, there's only so much you can really explain at that age, but we just explain on how important this was. And, and I look forward to talking to her more. I want y'all to do more. I want y'all to come out here so I don't have to worry about my kids getting shot and dying. So I don't got to worry about myself dying. I don't want to be out I think she's a little overwhelmed at this point. It's more conversations, more talks, and I know her questions will come once she starts processing. Black lives? Black lives? You're listening to Uptown Radio, podcasts available Thursdays at 4.30 p.m. New York City's first dedicated soccer stadium is coming to Queens next year. Queensboro Football Club is building a home field at York College, part of City University of New York. CUNY says it awarded contract to support the university's academic and athletic mission and foster the local economy. But as Kate Stockram finds, sports economists are skeptical the stadium will be an economic driver. 
Queensborough FC is a new United Soccer League team, one step under major league soccer clubs like the New York Red Bulls. Fans chose the team's color, landing on seven train purple, an homage to the local subway line. But despite community buy-in, sports economist Andrew Zimblist says stadiums rarely act as economic drivers. There's very little evidence that that, that occurs at, at any level um, uh, at college sports or professional sports. The 7,500-seat stadium will host community events along with team games. But because the team is lower tier, Zimbalist says he assumes Queensborough fans will likely be local. Uh, and, and so it's, it's really just money being spent on one block in the area rather than being spent on another block. Over 150 nationalities call Queens home. Sports economist Victor Matheson says that diversity will likely serve the club well, as many of those nationalities are known for soccer fandom. But he says that's also a double-edged sword. Uh, You've got a great potential uh, audience there, but you have to do right by them. These are not, uh, these are not, you know, fair weather soccer fans. Uh, Immigrant communities uh, know when you're throwing junk at them. Meaning it's more important that the team, not the facility, is impressive. Kate Stockram, Columbia Radio News. The internet and our use of it are constantly evolving. Five years from now, the web will probably be entirely different from what we know today. Artists, companies, and researchers are already considering what that future web might look like and who will control it. Nicole McNulty takes us on a trip to the metaverse and what it might mean for the future of the way we interact with technology. It's Saturday night and Sugar Club is happening. There's lights and art and people, or rather avatars that look like people, dancing. We're in a virtual world called Decentraland. You know, everyone's kind of just hanging out, enjoying their Friday night in the metaverse. Jeremy is a digital artist who creates kaleidoscopic moving images. Professionally, he goes by the name Trippy Yogi and is giving me a tour by sharing his screen. I think their main party space is actually up ahead. Oh wait, wrong way. Let's go back in this way. There's a side door off the club that leads to a gallery with an exhibition of digital art. If you click on one of the pieces, you're taken to a marketplace where you can buy that work. Let me step outside. Once you leave the club, there are bursts of color everywhere. Vibrant yellow and red trees planted in neatly landscaped orange grass. There are other people walking around, playing games, who you can stop and chat with. You can see buildings, a casino, and even a colossal Bart Simpson. And there are elaborate art installations that would be impossible in the analog world, like giant dancing fish floating high in the air. This is kind of like one of the blockchain-based art districts. Jeremy is setting up his own gallery space in Decentraland. Musicians are holding real concerts here. You can even gamble in a casino. There are slot machines and roulette tables. When you enter, you are greeted by an actual person through their avatar. I approached a female avatar floating in the air and introduced myself. Hi, my name is Nicole. I'm a reporter with Uptown Radio. Hi, Nicole. And this is Aaron. And I'm a casino host in the Central Land for the Central Games. Aaron says she works full time as a host in the casino. The most exciting part for me is uh, the fact that um, anybody can do actually anything in here. 
it's like crazy casino where you can actually play like real games with real money and you're like in there with your avatar sitting around with everyone in the casino it's it's mind-blowing all these different environments businesses galleries in decentraland are individually owned and operated unlike the web we now know the space in this world is finite by design there are only 90,000 parcels of land here most are already sold and the market is shooting up Earlier this month, a plot of land sold for over half a million dollars. Russ Moreland is a longtime painter and tattoo artist who also sells NFTs of his work on the web. He says he decided to buy some space in Decentraland and set up his own gallery. But then I looked at the prices and it's like, it's thousands. Like my wife would probably kill me. She'd be like, no, we could have put a, like a down payment on another house and had a rental property rather than, you know, you buying something in cyberspace kind of thing. Many users of Decentraland simply enjoy playing in cutting-edge reality technology. Others are here to speculate and cash in on the booming land values. Experts say Decentraland is a stepping stone to creating a new kind of internet and a way for all of us to interact with the web. You know, this to me feels very much like the internet in the mid-90s. That's Brian Romero, an artist and former website builder. And I was part of that first dot-com boom, and I... I get the same exact feeling I had then, now, about the virtual world space. There are several key features that distinguish Decentraland from the web today. The interface is virtual and far more interactive and elaborate. And most importantly, the ownership and operation of that virtual world is decentralized. Nearly every website you visit now is owned by a single entity, like Amazon or the Internal Revenue Service. Peter Kaufman is a writer who works at MIT's Open Learning. He says as users go from site to site, it gives the illusion that they are controlling their own experience online. But in fact, you know, you're, you're not. I mean, if you're on Google or if you're looking at YouTube or if you're, you know, surfing, listening to music, um, chances are you're, you're on a platform that is controlled by people other than you. It's basically like a monarchy. That's Glenn Goodman, a former BBC journalist and author of the book The Crypto Trader. He says that Decentraland offers the opportunity for collective decision-making. With a decentralized metaverse, you can create a democracy. So in a way, it's a kind of libertarian vision, getting away from the old monarchy of the virtual worlds run by corporations and creating new worlds for the people, run by the people for themselves. Dave Carr, on the marketing team for Decentraland, agrees. Where Decentraland differs is that the people who uh, exist in the world, uh, they not only create the world, but they own the world and they also govern the world. People who have a stake in Decentraland, who own the land or hold currency, have decision-making power. Kaufman says we already have important examples of decentralization on the net. Uh, chief among them, I think, uh, is the community of Wikipedians. Wikipedia is just the most awesome uh, institution. It's, you know, non-commercial. But Decentraland is definitely not non-commercial. In fact, experts say it's pioneering a combination of these features. Community control decentralized ownership of virtual world and commerce. 
And this combination is what's keeping companies up at night. Mark Pesci is a futurist and author of the book Augmented Reality, Unboxing Tech's Next Big Thing. He thinks in the next five years or so, companies like Facebook, Google, and Apple will draw on this model to develop the next stage of web experiences. He calls them augmented reality products. And then the race is going to be on to see who can really dominate the market for reality, because that's what it comes down to. And that's why Facebook wants it, because Facebook really wants to be able to manage your reality for you. In tech, five years is eternity. And for now, the place where these things are being explored is in this nerdy corner of the internet. But Brian Romero says we shouldn't dismiss it because little things can turn out to be big. You know, everyone's like, yeah, it sounds like it's for nerds and it's not really going to be popular. It sounds like a fad. (laughs) And we know how the internet turned out. So maybe see you soon in the metaverse. Nicole McNulty, Columbia Radio News. And now, in the latest in our commentary series, Katie Anastas shares how a 400-year-old play helped her embrace her identity. One day, when I was around 12 years old, my parents and I were in the living room, flipping through TV channels. We came across the 1996 movie version of Twelfth Night by William Shakespeare. My dad jumped up and got a book of plays off the shelf so I could follow along. I'd never seen a Shakespeare play, and the language was intimidating, but I wanted to give it a try. Twelfth Night tells the story of two twins, a man and a woman, who are shipwrecked. The woman, Viola, washes up on the shore of an unfamiliar country. Unable to find work as a woman, Viola disguises herself as a man and goes to work for Duke Orsino, who rules the country. As I sat with my parents, I watched Viola carefully glue on a fake mustache, bind her chest, smoke cigarettes, and learned a sword fight. She walks like a man, with her hands in her pockets and a cool, confident stride. To 12-year-old me, it looked like a lot of fun. Some part of me wanted to be Viola. I wanted her confidence, her wit, and her cool outfit. Later in the film, the Duke and Viola run into a barn to escape the rain. The fool sings a song for them. Come Come As he sings, the Duke puts his arm around Viola. The camera sweeps around them. Their faces draw closer. And you realize that these two quote-unquote, men, are into each other. Up until this moment in Twelfth Night, the only other queer people or queer relationships I'd seen on screen were either played for laughs or demonized. In this scene, it wasn't treated as a joke. It was just two people in love. And to be honest, it stressed me out. At Catholic school, my teachers were telling us that homosexuality was a sin that desire, particularly same-sex desire, was something to be ashamed of. I look back on that discomfort and realize that Twelfth Night was speaking to a part of me I didn't have words for yet. At my all-girls high school, I gladly donned a fake mustache to play a boy in class skits. I started realizing what crushes felt like. I went to college and dated a woman for the first time. I tried dressing masculinely, femininely, and somewhere in between. I came out. Twelfth Night was a touchstone for me through it all. Viola explores everything a woman can be, 
She can woo and be wooed. She can attract and desire. She can be confident and shy. She can be masculine and feminine. Today I have my pick of movies and TV shows when I want to find a character who reminds me of me. But I still make time for Twelfth Night. I've seen adaptations set in India and in American beach towns. I've seen all-male productions and all-female productions. Every time I see it on stage or watch the movie, I think about my 12-year-old self, confronted with the idea that gender and sexuality was a lot more complicated than I thought. That does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Karen Maniraho ran our show from Manhattan, New York. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Leila Dose, with help from assistant producer Jack Truitt. Senior editor Katie Anastas and assistant editor Fei Lu led our copy team. Renee Roden managed our website today, and Kate Stockroom, Arcelia Martin, and Nicole McNulty brought us today's news. Our instructors, Sally Herships, Patty Hirsch, and Ben Shapiro advised our staff. I'm Megan Zares. And I'm Haley Jow. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Thursdays at 4.30 p.m. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening. <laughs>